This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM. From the campus of the Wharton School in San Francisco, this is Launchpad on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Here is Professor Carl Ulrich. Welcome to Launchpad on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM Channel 132. I'm your host this week, Carl Ulrich. I'm the Vice Dean of Entrepreneurship and Innovation at the Wharton School, and I teach entrepreneurship, innovation, and product design at Wharton. I co-host Launchpad with Rob Connybeer. Rob is Managing Director of Shasta Ventures, a leading Silicon Valley venture capital firm. And Rob and I switch off hosting duties, mostly broadcasting from San Francisco, but also sometimes from the Wharton School campus in Philadelphia. The big idea behind Launchpad is that while Rob and I both believe that entrepreneurship is intrinsically risky, after all, you're doing something presumably that hasn't been done before, we do believe that there are some things you can do to increase your chances of success. So our approach to the show is to have each week several entrepreneurs share with us the challenges they are facing as they launch and grow their businesses. And then we look for opportunities to underscore tools, principles, and methods that can increase your chances of success. There are really three groups we hope to reach with the show. Some of you are yourselves entrepreneurs, and we think we probably speak quite directly to you. Some of you are thinking you might want to be entrepreneurs, and so we really hope to give you a realistic window into the world of entrepreneurship. And probably most of you are just interested in what's new out there in the world of business, and we hope we can make the show interesting for you as well. We have a great show today coming up. I'm going to talk with Derek Belch, who's the founder and CEO of Striver Labs, a virtual reality training startup with some really big partners. Then I'll be joined by Isaac Oates, who's founder and CEO at JustWorks, the fastest growing human resources technology platform. I'll also speak with Satoshi Sugi, the founder and CEO of Will a startup known for creating sleek, high-tech personal mobility devices. But to start off the show, I'm joined on the line by Blue Apron founder and former chief operating officer, Matt Wadiak, who also just launched a new startup called Cook's Venture. Matt, thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me. All right. First things first, I want to point our listeners to the URL for your current venture. It's called Cook's venture just the word cooks and the word venture put them together.com cooksventure.com matt give us the elevator pitch for cooks venture yeah sure so you know um our our vision statement is we're a group of cooks uh food professionals and farmers who couldn't find what we wanted in the food system so we decided to build it ourselves from the ground up animal by animal plant by plant meal by meal And really what that means is, you know, as I started my career as a young chef, I found that although I could find the kinds of foods that I would want to serve my friends and family and my customers, you know, in in small numbers at farmers markets and through local co-ops and places like that, the availability of high quality food in scale just didn't exist in our country. And as I got more and more into the industrialized food system and buying more and more food for millions of people, I pretty quickly realized that the 
the focus that people have in small farms and in, in, in agricultural communities doesn't really scale up well, but it doesn't have to be so. We can have good farming practices, grow good cultivars of food, um, graze animals with good husbandry, and also take care of our environment in scale. And that just goes back to following simple agricultural practices that have been around for millennia, but need to be put into uh, more modern production systems. All right. So I want to make this really concrete. So you're 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 really just getting going with with Cook's venture. And why don't you tell us about the current the current you said animal by animal, plant by plant. So tell us how you've gotten started. So when you look at our, our nation's crop system, we essentially have um, a, a variety of, of large agricultural products that we produce in our country, but by far the biggest one is corn. So when you look at, at corn as uh, a national crop, as a problem and a potential solution, about 30% of the nation's corn that we grow, when you're talking about the plant-by-plant -plant part, is, go, uh, is going towards ethanol production uh, in our country, which is, as you know, subsidized by, uh, by U.S. dollars, and it takes um, you know, more than a liter of ethanol to produce a single liter of ethanol, so therefore it's energy inefficient. About 19% of the corn that we grow in our country goes towards feeding cattle, so both dairy cattle and cattle for meat. And cattle are ruminant animals, meaning that they have uh, different chambers of their stomachs and a rumen, and the rumen is specifically designed to um, compost and fer ferment celluloid material, which is basically grasses. So when you're feeding uh, corn to cattle, it's kind of like putting sugar in the gas tank is a, a fair analogy, and it creates a, a lot of bloat in the cattle. They have uh, there's a lot of talk about this lately. They have a lot of methane emission from it, and that's the reason why a lot of large uh, cattle operations will feed their ca cattle antibiotics and growth hormones to try to eliminate some of the damage that is done to the rumen. <clears throat> so we shouldn't be feeding cattle uh, corn, and we know that. Um, the next biggest item uh, that corn goes towards is actually poultry, which is about 9% of America's uh, corn allocation goes towards poultry. Now, the biggest problem with that specifically is that when you just feed uh, poultry, chickens, turkeys, um, other poultry, game and fowl, uh, corn and soy specific diets, which are heavily subsidized by um, synthetic inputs like ammonium nitrate, which is fertilizer, or uh, glyphosate, which is commonly known as Roundup, then you're not contributing to a biological system within the soil to sequester carbon to use the power of the sun photosynthesis to draw down uh, carbon into the, the body and the root system of plants and then healthy soil microbiology to then sequester that carbon in the soil. And because we have more carbon in the soil than everything above the soil combined, we have the greatest potential to uh, reverse global warming through the sequestration of, of carbon via good agricultural systems. So our company launched by selling chicken because we believe that um, selling chicken can essentially not only create a, a better system of husbandry with the kinds of chicken that we sell and the flavor of chicken, which we can get into later, but it has the greatest potential to sequester carbon in the most appropriate way, both uh, biologically and in, in, in a way that we can scientifically prove. All right. Well, let's drill down on that. Super interesting. Why don't you tell us a little bit about how you raise chickens? So we raise, we actually have a, a, a heritage and heirloom breeding program, which uh, the company that I acquired 
um, was initially founded in 1939 by a, a gentleman by, by the name of Lloyd Peterson. And uh, my partner and executive vice president of the company, uh, Blake Evans, um, inherited the company and spent the last decade after inheriting a, a more conventional poultry business um, tr- saying, you know, where's the market headed? What do consumers really want? Where's the world going with, with poultry? And he decided with a gentleman by the name of Richard Udale, who's a, a, fa- a famous uh, poultry geneticist, that, you know, chicken had been sped up too much. So to the tune that uh, a modern chicken grows to about 42 days and uh, can grow to a live weight of anywhere from six to nine pounds. In 42 days. Like 42 days, that's right. No way. Like wow. the equivalent of like, uh, a, like a three-year-old weighing like 800 pounds. Right. So... This is just through breeding. And when I say geneticists, a lot of people think, you know, we're genetically engineering chickens. Um, there is no genetically engineered chicken out there undue to popular belief and speculation by some, you know, some folks. It, it's all natural. This is all done through natural selection and breeding. And a genetic. Well, wait, you know, hold it. Just for accuracy, it's done for un- by unnatural selection. That is, we, we oh. humans have bred these chickens, but without, without uh, genetic engineering specifically, right? You got that right. That's okay, correct. good. We're, we're speeding up the selection process and we're yeah. looking for traits that, you know, yeah, like you right. would with uh, canines or any other pure breed right. animal. Right. So, so we selected chickens to grow very quickly. And um, one of the problems with these chickens is, is that they grow on a curve that focuses primarily on meat production solely. So at the, you know, there's only so much energy that can go into an animal and they allocate that energy towards growth of, of certain parts of their body. So maybe their bones or their immune system, organs, uh, skeleton, uh, skeletal health, uh, just overall health in general, ability to be mobile, um, burn calories, metabolic activity. These are all the criteria that could be selected for in, in, in a poultry animal. So what we do is we take, you know, lines of birds that, um, are more tried and true in the poultry genetics community and breed those to select for a slower growing chicken that builds a skeletal frame first, uh, builds uh, a healthy immune system, healthy organ development, so that when it does eventually convert, um, you know, that feed into muscle, it has a really great frame to support. It has a really great immune system. It has a really great organ development. So these birds can withstand the, the, the weight that they then put on. So, a, a good analogy is like a teenager that's kind of scrawny, and then you turn on the light switch, and they 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 fill out. So our, our chickens kind of behave like that from a genetic standpoint. All right, but Matt, let me interrupt you. So I got two questions. First, uh, why do I, as the eater of of fried chicken, uh, care about mm-hmm. the skeleton? And uh, and and secondly, how does that improve the environmental footprint of chicken production? So those are great questions. The, the reason why you should care as an eater of fried chicken about the skeletal system of a chicken is when a conventional bird can't get up and, and support its own weight and even walk two steps from the feed to the water because its, its leg has, has no bone development and is essentially rubber, then that animal is suffering. And, and as people, I think we have some responsibility over the humane treatment of animals and making sure our animals aren't overbred to the conditions in which they suffer. Um, which is prolifically the case in mainstream agriculture. So by building a, a, a bird with a, a better immune system and better health and better, better skeletal system, you're, you're looking after nature. Secondly, um, from a flavor standpoint, those, the, the muscle fibers in those birds develop so quickly that the flavor of those chickens mm. um, is, is diminished, and you have now 
There's a recent article that came out talking about quote unquote spaghetti meat and chickens and the $200 million annual hit that chicken companies are paying for issues. Uh, one of them is called Woody Breast, where I'm sure everybody's been out to you know their, their favorite restaurant and had a, a bite into the chicken and it, it sort of tastes like a rubber hose. That's a major problem in poultry these days, along with other things like green tender uh, syndrome and white striping, which are all sort of scientific terms for um, the genetic malformations of these overbred poultry. So that's the second reason and, and how they can, uh, to answer your second question, how they can contribute to a healthier environment is by feeding these chickens um, and tracking the carbon from their feed, specifically on a farm over farm basis, the uh, biological matter, carbon sequestration, um, and biodiversity in the soil um, by growing more complex crop rotations with an animal that can, uh, best way to put it is handle a more complex feed, a more biodiverse feed through healthier guts, we can then sequester carbon and measure that carbon and report on it annually. So let me just uh, uh, circle back on that last point. So describe for me the farm and the sense in which I'm, I'm, I'm imagining a way you might close the loop in which you have chickens out there grazing on, on stuff that's growing uh, in fields, but, or I could imagine you harvesting grains and then feeding it to the chicken. Tell us a little bit about how that actually works in the closed loop on the farm. Yeah, that's a great question. So, you know, we'll, we'll go back to our friends, the cattle and the, in the ruminant animal system, cattle are really the only species that can graze in such a way that they can, digest uh, um, complex cellular material like, you know, woody stems and, and, and grasses. Chickens don't really get much nutrition from that. So you have to, to harvest more simple car- carbohydrates like corn and soy, lupin, lentils, uh, things like that for the right carbohydrate to protein mix in, in their feed. So all monogastrics, including people, need to eat some form of carbohydrate and protein and macronutrients nutrients mm-hmm. to survive. So the chickens do go outside and they do graze and they do get some nutrition and, and biological matter from being out in the grass. And just like people need to eat salad and vegetables, chickens uh, do benefit from that. But more importantly, what we can do is we can work with uh, feed mills, our feed mills specifically, and track back from the mill to the farmers um, who are growing the feed to those mills and actually like blockchain measure the actual carbon content and biological matter in, in those are in those individual fields on an annual basis, starting with this, which would be year zero, and then putting best practices through famous agronomists at places like uh, uh, the Savory Institute and the Union of Concerned Scientists and Rodale Institute, and and using third parties uh, to to back up our research and, and to put these plans in place to help these farmers diversify their fields and, and sequester carbon. So. The, the ability to do that really relies on our ability to track our crops and, and give our, our, our farmers really good crop science and yeah. really great advice to eliminate the synthetic substitutes that they add to their land on an annual basis and replenish their land instead naturally through, um, through natural inputs, which are grown on farm. So if you're just joining us, you're listening to Launchpad on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. And this is Carl Ulrich, and I'm speaking with Matt Wadiak, who's the founder and CEO of Cook's Venture. Um, so, Matt, let me ask you a, a tough and skeptical question, which is maybe not skeptical, but a tough question, which is um, wouldn't wouldn't if your if your goal is really reducing carbon footprint, wouldn't the solution be to to skip the chicken altogether and just eat eat the the grains directly? So 
that's a, it's a an often that question comes up more often than one might think, and there is a big mass movement towards this sort of uh, meatless world in which um, folks think that uh, you know veganism or, or or you know not supporting an animal system in 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 our world um, is somehow better for the environment, but that um, it's just simply not true. And there is a great book by Nicolette Nyman Hughes um, who uh, writes uh, uh, in her book Defending Beef about um, the prevalence of ruminant animals in our country pre-colonization, and there were actually more ruminants in the form of buffalo pre-colonization and, and more, more crops grown than, than there are even today. And, um, you know, they were managed through controlled burns and through, um, you know, fires and uh, th- that cleared ground for animals to, to, to trample weed pressure and then, you know, eat grains, which grew naturally, and then they would harvest those animals and eat them. The issue isn't so much the animals that are in the environment. It's the way that um, we often grow these animals in concentrated systems where uh, uh, methane, nitrous oxide, and, and carbon emissions build up in, in single places and aren't absorbed through healthy bacteria in the soil. So we're learning more and more that the soil is alive and requires animals to, to feed it in the complex biological systems and requires crops and animal systems in tandem. Without one, the, the soil would degrade and we would desertify our land. And actually, Alan Savory of the, the Savory Institute does a, has done decades of research on that and has proven it on multiple fronts. All right. So, so Matt, um, you're really into this and you know a lot. It's very impressive. Tell, tell us where this idea comes from. Well, you know, it comes from going into the grocery store and not being able to buy the kind of food that I, I want to buy. And, you know, I don't think a chicken should cost $35 from the farmer's market. And it's not, it's, it's not a problem of the, the farmer themselves. A lot of times there are really great regenerative farmers and organic systems farmers out there who are doing the right thing, but their barrier to entry in terms of um, access to processing of their meat or um, access to uh, aggregated grain systems that make sense are, are really limited. So, when I had the opportunity to invest in uh, a company that had full transparency into not only um, access to land and a mill and a, a breeding program and a hatchery and a processing plant, through economies of scale, we're able to drive down the, the unwanted costs that aren't related to environmental issues or husbandry and deliver the kinds of foods that I would want to eat. And that's really what it comes down to. If you're not passionate about the kind of business that um, you would want to consume yourself, then it's, it's probably not a very good um, business because you're not excited about it. And, and, yeah. and you know, being excited about cooking and, and feeding, feeding people, this is a, something that I think is, is needed and, and worthy of my attention. Yeah. So I, I would be remiss if I didn't at least – uh, talk a little bit about uh, how you can buy this stuff. So uh, I, I believe you, I can order chicken off your website. Is that right? So tell us, tell That's our right. listeners how they can actually get some Cook's Venture chicken. So you go to cooksventure.com and we just started our pre-sale of chicken. Um, we'll be shipping in early July on the pre-sale. Then we'll go live with chicken and then we're, we'll be adding in all of the other components of the food system, ruminant animals, cattle, uh, grains, vegetables, and, and other things in the future and working on delivery systems and uh, direct to consumer if you live in an area that's not selling our products or, or B2B. Um, so we hope to distribute in, in stores and uh, through restaurants and all kinds of places in the coming weeks and months. And um, 
But for the short term, if you want to support a better biological system and a better food system, go online and, and buy some chickens and we'll ship them to you in July. All right. So tell us, and, and even more precisely, I, I let's say I, I buy the four chicken pack. Uh, you ship, what, what is it that's in the box and how is it shipped? So you'll receive uh, four uh, frozen chickens wrapped in a box in a 100% curbside recyclable box and curbside recyclable liner made out of post-consumer content and um, aggregated and, and, and sent via a common carrier. And uh, and what will I pay for that? So uh, for the four chicken box is $70. So that's right. about the same price as what you buy a premium chicken in a, a, a fancy grocery store or a middle-range grocery store. Yeah. Uh, and I, 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 with great trepidation, asked this question, uh, who makes, is it a temper pack box that it goes in? A temper pack? It's, well, it's, it's a, it's a curbside recyclable box that the, the proprietary box, uh, maker is, is something that's still under NDA. So, okay. um, it's, All right. it's, it's, no, it's, I, I asked just because technology. one of those companies is, is my, is my former student and doing super well oh. anyway, a company called temper pack, but you should use them. Well, I, I, just I, I hope I'm working with them. Yeah. I hope you are too. All <laughs> right. I won't, awesome. I won't say, but I hope I am. Yeah. And I'm, I'm a, I'm an investor just for full disclosure and that. Okay. okay. So, um, so Matt, I, I, I would also be remiss if I didn't circle back. We just glanced over it so briefly, but you have an impressive pedigree. You were a founder, are a founder of Blue Apron and mm-hmm. were, you know, part of the leadership team for, for six, seven years. So that experience had to have been really amazing. And I wonder if you could contrast a little bit the formation and growth of Blue Apron uh, relative to what you're doing now? Well, you know, we, we never really expected to, uh, I mean, we're, we're happy that it happened, but we never really expected so quickly to be feeding so many millions of people. And I, I think that's one of the things that opened my eyes to some of the, the problems that, we, that do exist in the food system just in trying to source that volume of food for our company and being, being you know, of a culinary background myself, not um, having access to to that level of food and sometimes having to uh, you know create supply chain where it didn't exist um, wasn't empowering in that respect, but also frustrating in that you know there there is so much um, there's so many gatekeepers and there's so many barriers to entry in the food system and, and people who don't want to change the paradigm to do things for the better because um, you know they might have an account with so and so or um, they're used to doing things in a certain way. And, you know, from my perspective, you know, uh, the food business is the largest industry in the world and one of the only ones that's required and essential for human life. So it's something we should constantly be evaluating and, and thinking about. And um, I, I will say when you go through something like that, through uh, an experience that was such a, a rocket ship and, you know, something that we're all really proud of, um, it, it, it changes you in the respect that um, it, it allows you to, to, to look at problems differently and make you think that, you know, there are, there are solutions to, to the world's problems out there in ways that we haven't thought about because we, we've done that and, and people are proving that every single day. And great entrepreneurs that you talk to are doing that every single day. So, you know, in round two, in my in my next you know big uh, venture, which is supply chain, something that I'm extremely passionate about. Um, you know, we've obviously cultivated a lot of relationships, and I've learned a lot over the years. So it makes it a little bit easier in terms of 
um, I guess, some of the emotional hurdles that you have to get over to, to create a business and who to talk to and, and how you should, um, you know, relate to different parts of the industry. So I think that's why you probably know this statistic. I think that's why, like, you know, re- repeat founders who were successful to a certain amount of revenue in their businesses are like a thousand times more likely to be successful in their second business or their third business. And, um, you know, it, it just goes with experience, you know? So what, Every, what would you say another, another level? Yeah. What would you say you've done differently this time around? Well, this time around having a, a more robust executive team from day one uh, has been really, really helpful. You know, we, we found a really great industry veteran, uh, by the name of Mark Fisher, who's just a wonderful guy who's worked in poultry for 26 years and was in the U.S. Army for 12 years before that. And he just knows every single part of production inside and out. Obviously, Blake Evans, who was in, you know, our executive vice president and my partner who has started, you know, in, in diapers and inherited one of the largest poultry companies in America um, and, and just was around it his whole career. Richard Udale, our head geneticist, who's been breeding poultry um, for, God, like, I think 40 something odd years. He's a serious industry veteran and he was the twice president of the poultry breeders of America and um, amongst many other folks, and you know, from our controller to our chief of staff, all, all veterans in their industries. And I think starting out with the right team helps us uh, to focus, streamline, build process, build great um, dashboards and, and workflows and uh, uh, project management tools that make things a little bit more efficient and stable from day one. Yeah. Talk, talk just a minute or two about, about financing. Uh, you, uh, Blue Apron was a classic venture-backed startup. In fact, one of my yeah. good friends, uh, f- uh, guys at First Round Capital, were one of your first hmm. investors. Finn Barnes, yeah. Yeah. And um, Finn was also my student, by the way. So, oh. Yeah. Well, shout <laughs> terrific. out to Finn. Yeah, terrific guy. And um, uh, but the second time around, um, how, how have you financed this? I mean, you, you probably made a few bucks on Blue Apron, but have you been doing this yourself or have you gone back to venture capital to support this? Yeah, we're, we're under NDA with some of that, but we have some, some, uh, some really fantastic folks in California who are uh, social impact investors who helped us out, who are really wonderful people and mm-hmm. really invested in, in, into building not only better ecological systems, but better social systems, which is one of our company's mission, uh, missions in, in addition to um, just environmental change and, and better husbandry. We want to impact the people around us and create better jobs, quality jobs for diverse groups of individu- individuals. So we found a great uh, uh, fund that helped us with that. And then, of course, I have put in some money myself. And, um, you know, we'll see what the future brings in terms of other funding rounds. Yeah. All right. Well, last question for you, Matt. I wonder, you know, there's been a there was a, a huge boom in in Blue Apron, Plated and other competitors in the in the meal kit business. And mm-hmm. and there were some ups and downs for sure, and we're probably settling into a sustainable model there. But I wonder if you can speak t- in general to the to the uh, what you think the future holds for for cooking and for people eating at home. Yeah, you know, I don't even like the word meal kit. Somewhere like you know, um, the industry picked that term up, and the way that I think about it is. You know, it's the same kind of question that we used to get asked, or are you really cooking? Well, you know, if you're taking ingredients and you're preparing them from a recipe in your house in a pan and, you know, putting stuff in your oven, yes, you're cooking, and it's real cooking. And, you know, the 
the the real thing that we're addressing through these these kind of businesses and technologies is we're transitioning from a, a paradigm which really started with Webvan. What was that in 1999? And you know went on and there was obviously Fresh Direct, which is still a great company and it's out there and Peapod and then you know like third generation food companies like Blue Apron and and other similar businesses that sell food through the the internet. But they're really gross. All of these are really grocery companies, and and what they're ultimately doing is selling groceries and building supply chain and building logistics. And I think the the equity analysts who are looking at these kinds of companies are underestimating the logistics and the potential impact of those kinds of businesses yeah. as grocery direct consumer businesses in the biggest industry in the world. And the supply, I can tell you firsthand, the supply chain and logistics associated with getting um, somebody a, a a package of food that's fresh. Anywhere in the country within, you know, 24 to 48 hours is remarkable and highly underestimated by marketing equity analysts. And, you know, when you look at Generation Z and Generation Y, I'm sure you talk about this, uh, you know, as an entrepreneur and investor constantly, they don't consume goods in the same kind of way that people from my generation, your generation do. They consume from their phone. They consume from the Internet. And they expect things in real time. So I think we're going to see those businesses um, including my alumni matter and my current company transition in, into um, more direct to consumer uh, businesses with the last mile capabilities mm-hmm. through complex logistical systems and, and third party delivery systems. And the, the back end that was built into that, you know, just the thousands and thousands and thousands of engineers and aggregates that have, have built up the technology to be able to execute on those platforms will be utilized into the future of food and to the future of commerce. All right, Matt. Well, you are very authoritative, knowledgeable, and articulate about all this. It's been so interesting to have you join us. Thanks so much for making the time. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. All right. So for more information, go to cooksventure.com and you can pre-order some chicken. Coming up, I'll be joined by Derek Belch, founder and CEO of Striver Labs, a startup leading the way in using virtual reality for learning and training. I'm Carl Ulrich, Vice Dean of Entrepreneurship and Innovation, and you're listening to Launchpad on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play. Oh, 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 o